it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. Sometimes you're left wondering, why can't we seem to ever have nice things? Take sports, for example. Sports is where you can learn all the lessons of life, including the ones you'd rather not. Are sports a welcome distraction or just another reminder of the profound challenges our world faces today? Heroes are made in the throes of competition around the world, but they can equally disappoint us when in front of a microphone. Is the problem the guys in head office or are we the fans the problem? To explore these questions, I'm joined by Bruce Arthur. Bruce is a Toronto-based columnist for The Star, headed to the Olympics next week. He was named the 2012 Sports Writer of the Year by Sports Media Canada, and he has been named to Sports Illustrated's list of the top 100 people to follow on Twitter four times. Every time Bruce drops his twins off to play a sport, he tells them the same thing. Have fun, get better. I wish you the same listening to this conversation. Thank you for joining me, Bruce, and welcome to At Risk. <laughs> My pleasure, Jody. So has sports always been this political or are we entering a new territory today? I think it has always been this political, but I think it's usually a reflection of the history that's going on around it. Muhammad Ali is the one that everybody points to. In the 1960s, Muhammad Ali was at, he was kind of the locus of an enormous amount of political tension and strife involving race, involving the Vietnam War. And that, that was just, again, a reflection of the world that was going on around him. So the same thing is happening now. And if you think about the political context and how it's changed, how different it is even from 15 years ago, from 20 years ago, from 30 years ago, um, it was much easier to be apolitical, I feel like then. Um, because politics didn't didn't force its way into your life, especially the Trump era. That was one of the the byproducts of it. Is that politics forced you to pick a side in a way that I'm not sure it ever had. No, not ever, but in decades. Um, and so w- when you see what's happening now, when you see, for instance, during the Trump years, basketball teams and football teams refusing to go to the White House. That had never happened before in the history of that tradition. I'm not even sure how far that back that goes. But the political era now is so much more intense. It's so much more dangerous, I would argue, societally, um, that you do get the reflection of it in sports, even though at this point, athletes are more insulated from society if they choose to be than they've ever been before. They make more money than they ever have. Uh, They are capable of walling themselves off from the world and ignoring it if they want. Um, but a lot of them don't and can't. And I think that's a function of the times as much as anything else. There's also the aspect that for a long time, sports itself was apolitical. Um, like the one comparison they always make is Michael Jordan versus LeBron James. Michael Jordan was studiously apolitical. Uh, LeBron James has been overtly political. And what players had told me over the years is that gave others permission. Once one person does it, other people can do it. You haven't seen it in hockey. No one's ever given really a lot of permission in hockey, uh, especially at the highest level of player. In basketball, you have, and so you've seen it spread through a league. And 
all of a sudden that league is much more vocal about social issues than it ever has been. So what does that mean in terms of how we talk to our kids about athletic heroes? Um, You know, sometimes I think we turn to athletics for examples of heroes because it was, you know, a simpler definition, right? It was overcoming adversity. It was putting your best foot forward. It was mental stamina. And now there's a whole complexity around it uh, because, Sometimes there's people like Colin Kaepernick, who I'm like, yeah, like he should be able to speak out. And I hate the way the league has seemingly punished him for it. But on the other hand, I'm a Packers fan and it's deeply disappointing to have to cheer for Aaron Rodgers. Like I'm like, geez, I really wish he he would maybe not talk about these things. That would be amazing and simpler for me. So how should we think about athletes and heroes and I guess more uh, complexly, how should we talk to our kids about that? If you're going to be a sports fan at the most basic level and you just want to be a sports fan, it requires a certain amount of dissociation. You You have to not know too much. And that applies to every other sphere as well. That applies to politics, to entertainment. But sports is one that is marketed to kids like we, we don't put all our kids into youth theater, right? We put them into sports. A lot of us do, um, whether they're good at it or not, because it teaches teamwork, all the things it teaches it character. It gets you active. It, it, it has a different entry into society than almost any other kind of sphere uh, other than education, right? Like those are the kind of the two things that most kids will experience in their lifetime. And so, as you get up to the higher levels of professional sports, it doesn't necessarily reward those things that they tell you that sports rewards. You do have a, have to have a certain amount of character to be a professional athlete because it requires an enormous amount of time and work, discipline, all those things. You do have to have a certain amount of, of character in terms of dealing with other people quite often, not in tennis necessarily or, or golf, but in other sports. But most of all, it, it's like politics. It's like entertainment. It rewards performance. It rewards winning. And uh, when you get into stuff like Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, again, is a reflection of, of the times. Same with Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets. Same with Novak Djokovic. Um, there are certain people who cannot properly process the world who are, and they, that's not just tennis players, it's not just football players. Um, and if you want to cheer for the Packers, you have to dissociate yourself from that. You have to go, well, look, this happens to a lot of people. It's a shame it happened to the best player in Packers history. Um, to talk to your kids about it, a lot of kids pick a favorite team when they're like 10 years old and let, let, them, let it determine their mood for the, net, for the rest of their life. Um, when I became a sports reporter, I kinda, my fandom in different sports dropped away because I'd kind of seen a lot of how sports worked. I'm no longer a Vancouver Canucks fan a Seattle Supersonics fan. They don't exist. Montreal Expos fan. They don't exist. That didn't help. Vancouver Grizzlies. That, that didn't work out for me either. But I used to be a fan of the last fan. I was a team of uh, last team. I was a fan of was the Philadelphia Eagles. And I used to live and die with Philadelphia Eagles games for some reason. Cause I watched a, certain players play for them when I was 10 years old. And then I learned, the more I learned about the NFL, the more I had to, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't give that emotional energy to it anymore. And I think you let kids cheer for athletes, but you have to explain 
as they get older, the context of the world that they're living in. And it's not quite as simple as never meet your heroes, but it's something like that, in that you can admire, you have to be able to understand that you can admire someone for parts of what, of their life, parts of what they do, and still understand that there are other parts that you don't like. Now, there are limits to that. I don't know how many OJ Simpson fans there still are in the world, um, like big OJ Simpson football fans, uh, Oscar Pistorius. Lance Armstrong is a really interesting example. Like Lance Armstrong was absolutely a product of his sport and used his recovery from cancer to raise an immense amount of money for cancer and become this inspirational figure. And he did it by cheating. And that was entirely a product of his sport. So you can excuse that, but then he also destroyed people's lives in an effort to protect that. And so you have to understand that people are nuanced and complicated. And that's kind of how you have to eventually tell your kids is that there's the simple version and then there's the real world version. And it's, it's sometimes hard to accept one and not the other, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I talked to my son um, about sports, for him, you know, he can understand why Lance Armstrong is no longer a celebrated figure. And it was really all the obfuscation, as you pointed out, and, and really the hardball tactics he deployed to try and cover up his doping. But for him, like, he just cannot understand why Barry Bonds is not in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was like, look, he was a Hall of Famer before he ever injected mm -hmm. everything. And he finds it, like, a little stupid how much we talk about what athletes inject and don't inject, whether it's vaccines or, or you know, uh, performance-enhancing drugs. He just finds it all kind of ludicrous. <laughs> Barry Bonds is a good example of teaching your children about the weakness of institutions right? And the, and the problems with institutions. Major League Baseball allowed performance enhancing drugs to flourish over a period of years, was quite happy to essentially market it without marketing the performance enhancing drugs, just the results of it. And Barry Bonds, again, was a product of his sport. Not every player doped. And again, you, you, being a product of your environment doesn't mean you don't make choices and you can't be held accountable for that. But Barry Bonds was a great player who saw other players become greater than him because they used all this stuff. And so he decided to be better at it. Same with Lance Armstrong. It's very similar. When you get into the idea of the Hall of Fame, Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame and part of his plaque should be, this is what we know about his performance enhancing drugs. This is what happened before and after it clearly happened before his head size grew. So he needed a new, a new hat. Um, there should be a, I've, I've said for years, like a Hall of Fame should be a museum. And so you should have a, a display devoted to the era of performance enhancing sport, drugs and sport. Uh, and so Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Roger Clemens, you can go on and on. And Bonds is the, the apex of that. Because Bonds, if you strip away the why, Barry Bonds is the greatest baseball player who's ever lived. Just as Lance Armstrong is the greatest cyclist who has ever lived. And let's say if tomorrow we found out that Michael Jordan or, or LeBron James or Wayne Gretzky had used some performance-enhancing drugs, they would still be as great as they ever were. But it is... It was baseball that allowed that to happen. And then now baseball as an institution is, is protecting itself by not letting those people into the Hall of Fame. The writers vote, but it's still, it's still an institutional problem. It's, this stuff is complicated. Like the th cheering for sports is fun. Watching sports is fun. Um, but the more you unpack it, the harder it is to reconcile that fun. 
And then you have to find your own personal level of balance there, right? You have to find a level of, like, I love watching sports. Uh, I'd like, I'm going to go to the, I'm leaving for the Olympics in, geez, eight days. This Olympics will be a monstrous violation of human rights. It will be an example of everything that's wrong with how international sports work. Some people say like at the highest level of international sport, it has nothing to do with international sport. It's going to be a repression centered authoritarian Olympics. Um, but the stuff at the heart of it is still going to be great. The athletes are still going to be the athletes that the Olympics sells nothing less than the human spirit. And so that's an example of, you have to be able to separate what they do and who they are with the institution sometimes and with society and with, and that's why if you're going to choose your heroes in sports, you can choose great ones. You can choose ones that will probably, probably never let you down, but you have to be ready that they might. And that, so like Barry Bonds is like that. Barry Bonds was great. Um, and then he was greater and he let you down. Right. Like if you, if you, if you believe in that stuff, if you think that he shouldn't have, have contravened this idea of natural performance, whatever that actually means, because that's a whole nother conversation of, we don't actually know. There's, there's a lot of gray when it comes to performance enhancing drugs. I think that's where my son comes from. He just kind of shrugs. Like he, he sees it like we're chasing some false dichotomy that's probably never existed. And, um, you know, I have empathy for that because um, while well, we have wonderful stories of athletes who have come from backgrounds where they haven't been able to access uh, a lot of privilege, um, we know that access to those things really do make you healthier. Like we, there's like tons of research around that. Um, so this idea of even equity within the game uh, and what's kind of natural ability versus what's enhanced ability, I think to him just seems like we're, we're, we're chasing at, you know, apparitions. There's a great book called The Sports Gene by David Epstein, who used to work for Sports Illustrated, and I believe he was at ProPublica for a while. And it's about how sports is essentially a global sorting system, not only for genetics, but for culture. Like runners in a certain tribe in Kenya who live at high altitude are the greatest runners broadly in the world, whereas if you grew up in Chile at high altitude, there are genetic differences in terms of how your, your specific... Uh, evolution has happened in response to your conditions that there's no great Chilean distance runners. Um, and, and there's a million examples like that. And sports as, as a global entity, like we, we don't know for a hundred percent certain what the fastest possible time, like a human can run a hundred meters. Usain Bolt has never tested positive. There has not been a lot of chatter around him in terms of performance enhancing drugs in advance of the London Olympics, the Jamaican Olymp or anti-doping agency conducted one out of competition test. We don't know. We don't know. Um, we don't know how much a human with no chemical aids can lift. We don't know what that number is. The greatest weightlifter in the world is a Georgian, whose name I'm not going to attempt at this moment. Um, and he's incredible. He has a previous steroid bust on his docket. Of course he does. Um, and that's that's one that's one of the dichotomies between what we tell kids and what sports is, is we want it to be relatively pure. 
We want your kid to run out on the soccer field, get out on the hockey rink, get out on a basketball court, whatever it is, get in a pool and find out how much better they can be. Have fun, get better. That's what I tell my kids whenever I drop them off at anything. Um, and it's always have fun first, right? It's always have fun, have fun, have fun. Um, and we, we I always tell my kids, you want to be as good as you can be and, and find that out. But if you take that to a logical extreme, Barry Bonds figured out how good he could be. Like Lance Armstrong figured out how good he could be. And that's where sports, the, again, the more you know about anything, the more complicated something gets. Um, and that's one of the issues. And so, so if you're a sports fan and you don't want to engage on this level, you don't want to read the books on Lance Armstrong, or you don't want to find out exactly what every hockey player does off the ice or, um, that's totally understandable because sports is supposed to be fun, but it is a, it is as complicated an ecosystem as almost anything else because sports lives in the world. And that's why when people have, people have been telling me for 20 years, stick to sports. And what I always tell them is, I kind of am, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the other area where I don't know what the future holds, and I'm super interested in your thoughts on it, is gender. We mm -hmm. divide so many sports and the awarding of uh, medals and the playing of the games themselves by gender. Um, what does the future look like there? Are we going to continue to divide by gender? Um or, or are we going to start having, you know, men and women play on teams together and not, you know, call them, you know, co-ed? It's just the game. You need specific sports for that to happen. And that's the trick is like, uh, and that's another thing in the sports gene. At nine years old, the fastest female and male runners are running about the same speed. And then the boys get on the testosterone kind of rocket ship and it changes from almost everybody, the level that you can get to. It's just, it's, it's a, a key evolutionary difference. This is where you get into transgendered issues. And that that is a, a scientifically complex, culturally difficult um, aspect of, of kind of sports. And what the people who are opposed to transgendered participation in sports and indeed in society, it tends to be a Venn diagram where it's just a big circle. Um, they tend to say, well, that's not how it's meant to be. That's an unfair advantage. If you were born a man, you got that testosterone boost and now you are a woman. Again, there's a lot of complexities. I'm oversimplifying it. Um, but I go back to Lance Armstrong for a second. Lance Armstrong, when you, when you use EPO, which is an endurance promoting drug, you, there's a certain uh, measurement in your blood that, and again, I'm oversimplifying this, that you can go up to 50 on this number. And the lower your existing level, the more EPO you can cram into your body. Well, guess what? Lance Armstrong had a really no, low number. So he could put more EPO into his body. That's a genetic advantage. With transgendered sports, it's not quite as simple, but it is a genetic advantage, um, which is then put through, this is where you get the definition of how much of transgendered, um, how much of that issue is scientific, cultural, it's, it's enormously complex. In terms of the idea of, of men and women, as we know, you can't take uh, a WNBA player and put her in the NBA and have her succeed. It's just, it's, ne it's never happened. Same with women's hockey. There's just the differences in speed size and cultural 
Um, there's also a cultural aspect of this, right? Like men have more advantages culturally sports wise than women. Um, I don't think that's going to change. I do think that there's a lot of room for women's sports as a side issue. I think women's sports is going to become much bigger professionally. I think eventually in our lifetime, we'll see women's soccer and women's hockey be, have a bigger footprint than they do now and women's basketball as well. Um, but in terms of gender as it exists, it, it, there's a lot more conversations to have about that. And I suspect that for a time it will, it will hit on, and this is what, what's kind of what's happening now. It will hit on a shutting out of transgendered athletes. Um, but I think there's room for that to change too. Uh, and at the last Olympics, there were two transgendered athletes who competed. Um, and in terms of the Canadian women's soccer team, Quinn is, she considers herself non-binary. Um, this again, sports reflects the world and it's going to continue to do so. Yeah. I read this great article in the walrus a couple of years ago where, where it pointed out that sort of the gospel as it were, was that men had greater endurance than women, but, uh, in at least a few instances, women have been, uh, winning at ultra marathons over men. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it, so to your point about cultural, uh, you know, I started to think, well, I wonder just how much of the quote unquote genetic advantages are also influenced by cultural. And might we start to see some sports breakthroughs uh, where we discover actually women can play these games better, even if they're at some sort of physical disadvantage? Well, and one thing that's interesting, I can't remember where this was. There was a college, I think it's a college in the States, and I may be getting this wrong, where they've got a female pitcher on the college baseball team. Now, pitching is partly uh, muscles, but it's tendons. It's, it's, um, it's repetition. It, like there's, it's mechanics. Like there are probably, and it's control. So that, again, each sport will be different. Um, that cultural idea uh, in terms of the advantages men get, that will diminish over time, I would, I would think. Um, the idea of endurance is a super interesting one. Because a lot of those sports, in terms of endurance, you almost probably have to go to an ultra marathon right now. But could you go to an Ironman triathlon and could you have the same weight to power output between men and women? Because that's kind of what you need in these sports is you need to have need to be light enough that it's not too hard to run and be on a bike. But you need to be strong enough that you can still power through and, and create a lot of a lot of propulsion. It's a really interesting idea. Again, think about where sports were 100 years ago. And think about where they are now. A hundred years to us feels like an eternity. Babe Ruth was the best player in baseball a hundred years ago. Um, like the Olympics looked very different a hundred years ago. Humans evolve. Um, and they evolve in concert with genetics and culture. And w do we have any idea what the world's going to look like in 10 years, 50, a hundred? No, we really, we have less certainty now that we've maybe had at any time in the last several centuries. Um, and all of this is going to evolve. If gender gets to a point where you can see women competing with men, I think the difficulty will be the leap from one to the other. Like Kaylee Humphreys as a bobsledder is one of the greatest bobsledders in the world, formerly Canadian, now competing for the United States. And she's tried to compete in men's bobsleigh. It took a, an enormous amount of effort to, to just logistically and administratively jump from one to the other. 
And so that's going to be one of the hurdles that's we're, that we're going to face if we get to that point where it can happen on even an irregular basis. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you also mentioned you're getting ready to head to the Olympics, uh, COVID willing, <laughs> and maybe some deities too. Um, what is the Olympic movement? Um, you know, I've read so many articles or seen headlines, you know, the Olympic movement is broken. And I often ask myself, well, what Olympic movement are they talking about? What What is it? Okay, so at the broadest level, what the Olympic movement is defined probably as the International Olympic Committee, then the National Olympic Committees in every country in the world, and then all the sub-sports within those National Olympic Committees, and then you get the athletes who populate the sub-sports and all the support staff that goes along with that. Uh, that is, in its essence, the Olympic movement. Then you add on all the, but then you go. Okay, let's go, let's rewind a little bit. What is the International Olympic Committee? It's an unaccountable, non-transparent, um, often corrupt group of primarily aristocrats uh, or connected um, people of prominence. Or, uh, I mean, the prominence can mean a lot of things. Uh, people who are willing to do what it takes to get into the club. Um, whose interests are in largely themselves, uh, who occasionally have to be paraded out of the fanciest hotel in Geneva covered by hotel bedsheets when the police come. Um, that there is an enormous amount of room for corruption in any international sports, and this applies to FIFA and soccer as well, because there's an, think of all the money that exists in that giant pyramid that comes down to the idea of we need uh, a soccer arena. We need to build a gym. There, there's so many opportunities for corruption, nepotism, and all of that all the way up and down. And that's one huge part of the Olympic movement. When Sochi was given the games, when Russia got it in 2014, there was a few reasons for that. One is that someone told me once that the three places on earth where you can have any sports event, you can hold it there like a universiad, right? Like a, a world biathlon championship. Um, the three places on, on earth where you can definitely make money doing that, if you were putting on the event, or China, Russia, and I believe it was the United Arab Emirates. Um, and so Russia bought its way into not just holding international events, but putting people in different committees and putting and, and having people in di at different levels of sport. And so when the Russian doping scandal erupted, Russia had an enormous amount of leverage and power within the Olympic movement. So that's the Olympic movement, is that the IOC worked so hard to cover up the biggest state-sponsored doping scandal in modern history. Because, not because they're in it for the sport. No, they're not trying to defend athletes. Of course not. That's the Olympic movement. Then the other side, and the reason this all works, the reason that this is allowed to happen, and it's the same in soccer, is the product they're selling is unbeatable. It is unfreaking beatable When you go to an Olympics and you see what happens, um, when not just the, the intersections of cultures, which are endlessly fascinating and quite often inspiring, um, you see the pride that people have in their performance, what it means to them, what they have to do to get there. Um, again, it's, they're selling the human spirit. And that's the other part of the Olympic movement is athletes around the world who don't get rich, who don't get famous who have to sacrifice huge amounts of their life for one chance maybe in their whole life to be great. That is a fundamental human truth, right? It's a, and that's the other part of the Olympic movement. 
And the tensions in there, you can, you can spot them a mile away. Beijing is going to be the intersection of an enormous amount of those tensions because Human Rights Watch is telling athletes, don't speak out against China's human rights record while in Beijing. Don't do it because we're not sure you will be protected. What's the purpose of the IOC if we don't know if they will protect the rights of athletes? And then they, they, they try to keep athletes from speaking their mind in a number of different ways anyway. But like, if an athlete shows up and says, free Hong Kong, do they know what will happen to them? And they don't. And so there's this fundamental tension between the people who are running the sport, often for their own interest, and the people who are in the sport, who are a transient population because they don't last long in, in, the, in the movement. And that's, that's the problem of the Olympics, and it's the greatness of the Olympics, um, is, I mean, they gave an Olympics to China. Um, and, and, I mean, I will say this. The Olympics will be in Los Angeles in 2028. If Donald Trump becomes president in 2024, what's the human rights record for the United States going to look like in 2028? Probably not great. Right? Like it's, it's complicated. It's a whole world that these guys are dealing with. And the, it, I, in another way, the IOC is a reflection of the world, of the moneyed interests, of the, of the thirst for power, of the idea of using sport to cover up your own, um, cover up the stuff that really matters, right? Um, that's the Olympic movement to me. So in a way you're bringing up governance, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's the sport, there's sports, but then there's the governance structures that oversee them. Um, and while there's definitely all these tensions on the playing fields, racial tensions, gender tensions, uh, vaccines, what athletes are putting in themselves and what they're not, but there's also just the administration of the sport. And I am not, um, an enormous F1 fan. Um, I watch so much sports, but that's not one of them. But when I was telling somebody that I was preparing for this podcast, they were like, wow, you got to ask them what happened just uh, just before Christmas where where we saw the essentially the the um, uh, I would call it refereeing, but perhaps that's not the mm -hmm. right word, but the refereeing of, of the final race uh, seemed to change the outcome. And surely yeah. that integrity of the sport is so essential to it. So uh, I guess my question is, is it is it sort of the, the polarization of our politics playing out on the playing fields? Or is it just really crappy governance structures uh, that that's you know sometimes make sports more complicated than that than it needs to be oh i think that i mean you can point to governance issues all over the world in a lot of different ways and sports is not immune sports what's interesting with sports and that is why would you be allowed to get away with those governance issues for example in f1 where lewis hamilton loses the the f1 title because of essentially a, a ruling made during the race um why would people put up with that? And a lot of it is how much do people really want just to be entertained? And so this idea of integrity, again, it's the, we talked about this at the beginning is, is you sell this to your kids, right? That you, you go in and you be a high character athlete and you learn integrity and all of this. Um, when people watch US college football or professional football, those sports exploit and eat up their talent and the guys you grew up cheering for might wind up shooting themselves in the head on the side of a Santa Monica freeway because their brains got eaten up by football. 
And that's happened over and over and it will continue to happen. And football still, they, I mean, they settled a giant class action suit with their players over their handling of concussions. And it didn't affect the popularity of the league one bit, not one bit, honestly, like it's still the most popular sport in the, in the United States and one of the most popular sports in the world. Um, there are Middle Eastern countries buying up Premier League teams um, and using and or, or, or teams in France or, or all over the place in order to advance their own interests. Uh, uh, do people care about that? I'm not sure they do. Um, and the same with Russian oligarchs and the same with. I think at at their core, a lot of people just want to be entertained. They just want to watch. They want something on television, which is uncertain which occurs in real time, um, which has personalities and stories, and you can choose your heroes and your villains. And it's still, to me, in, in, a, in one way, not every way, but it's, it's one of the greatest forms of entertainment there is. There's nothing quite like it. As, as television, as conventional television has kind of died away in terms of the shared stuff that we all watch, streaming services and the internet have all affected this, sports has held its value the most because you cannot replicate sports on netflix you can't replicate it on the internet in the same way um i mean we're also we're also heading into an era where and this is a bit of a side issue but where sports is going to fundamentally change in terms of how it is marketed to everyone including kids which is that gambling is going to be a fundamental part there's a giant gold rush towards gambling right now i our, my newspaper is a part of that i can't uh it's not something i'm at all interested in it's not something that I'm interested in in terms of gambling myself. I find the gamblification of sports to be a little bit repellent. Um, I think it'll have all kinds of interesting implications when it comes to the integrity of sports, actually, because, I mean, that that's still a thing. Um, but, again, that's going to bring in – they think that's going to bring in more fans. So the, our, your kids and my kids will grow up with sports as a gambling concern. Um, how does that change how they look at sports? How does that change how they look at society? And uh, again, it's, it's always a reflection. The same thing with the, the pandemic was a mirror on, on everything, right? And sports is itself a bit of a mirror. Um, and it just, I'm not sure how much people want to know about anything. You know what I mean? Some people do. A lot of people I just do. want to watch Tom Cruise, right? Like, No, I do get what you're saying. Uh, because as I was saying, you know, I'm not an F1 fan. But as I started reading about what happened, the sort of the let's stop talking about it talking point from F1 was, well, we're going to do a review and an investigation yeah. and we'll get back to you, right? Which That's is what often the IOC the does. That's exactly what the IOC does, what the FIFA does, what the NFL does. That's the playbook. Yeah. That is the playbook, right? Yeah. So I was like, okay. And it's like, there's no transparency on the process. There's no accountability um, for the rigor of the process. And the thing that I hate about it and I kind of hear in my son's comments when he talks about sports, I don't mind sort of saying, okay, sports is entertainment. WWE is an extreme example of that. But to a certain extent, all sports are a bit like that. So I'm like, okay, cool, cool, cool. But when we talk about governance structures and use the terminology of investigations and 
use rule books to to kick people out of games and cost them huge amounts of money, then you're like, well, like maybe your dogs could bark and your ducks could quack instead of having all these quacking ducks. Like, like, is there harm in that? Well, sports leagues are not built to investigate themselves, right? And just as national Olympic committees are not built to boycott Olympics, uh, just as F1 is not built to uh, do anything other than put on races. That race, by the way, that F1 race was thrilling. It's the only F1 race I've watched in, in anything involving anything close to, to totality in years and years and years. Um, it is, maybe it would be easier if they didn't have to pretend. There's kind of a real politic idea that if the NFL just, like, do, do movies investigate themselves? Does television issue reports on bad behavior within a television show? No. But they also don't, market it in the same way in terms of a shared identity. One of the most, and this is why you kind of have to have this, or maybe you don't, but that's why they think they have to have this sop towards actual governance, even though every league is pretty, pretty terrible at it to varying degrees. And partly because again, it's not what they're set up to do, but um, sports could do what those other entertainment forms do, except that they sell more than just the entertainment. They sell belonging. One thing that Western society does extremely poorly is the idea that we're all in this together. The pandemic was, we were told this, that we're all in this together. We clearly were not. We're still not. We never will be. That's where the mirror comes in. Uh, the idea that you're not just a Red Sox fan, you're part of Red Sox nation. You're not just a Leafs fan, you're part of Leafs nation. It is a shared community and an identity that's actually very similar to things like people who are political partisans or people who are extremists. Um, they're very, very similar. And that idea of belonging means they need to have some kind of, at least they think they need to have some sop to moral standards, to governance standards. They need to pretend. It, we might have a future where the NFL doesn't even pretend, where they drag a player off the field and then they, and then they, they throw him in the back of a truck and he's gone forever and off you go, that there's no accountability for that. And I wonder about that because I'm not sure sports have ever seen true. I, I'm not sure that the desire for sports to act in a, even a superficially moral or idealistic or integrity-based uh, manner is outweighed, isn't outweighed rather by the idea that people just want to watch sports. And I think they can get away with more and more and more as time goes on, if they want. There's a Washington football team investigation and some of the leaked emails took out the coach of the Oakland Raiders or Las Vegas Raiders, John Gruden. And there are 600,000 emails and the NFL hasn't released them into the team culture of like the, probably the worst franchise in a league full of bad franchises. They have not released. Them. People say you should release them. The NFL isn't doing it. They're, they, they're accountable to nobody unless Congress calls them. Right. Uh, they're, that's not even, they're not even pretending. Right? Like, they're not really <laughs> pretending to care about it. Um, and sports can get away with this, again, because the product they're selling, if you are selling a great product, the better it is, the more you can get away with things. And that's sports. And their product is just even more attractive today because as someone uh, a colleague of mine said to me she comes from the world of fashion 
She's like, Jody, we're in the middle of a pandemic where every day looks the same. New is the new new. And I was like, new is the new new. I now see that <laughs> everywhere. And honestly, it's why I've been watching so much sports. It's new, right? And actually, funny story. My wife doesn't care about sports. She really doesn't. Um, but during the pandemic, she got to a home. She's like, I'm going to I'm going to choose a football team. You can probably guess where this is going. Um, and she uh, and we go through kind of the different football teams. I kind of tell her, OK, if you like there's no good moral football team to choose, but you can choose it on a, a like a relative basis. And she hits on the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers happens like four months later. So that's over. But it's, it is it's we live in an attention economy. I guess we always have. But now it's, I think, more pronounced, which explains a lot of how actually politics works now is everyone's a poster, right? Uh, an internet poster. Everyone is trying to just grab eyeballs and hold on to them. And sports is good at that, man. Um, sports has the ability to do that. Because if you do stick to sports, if you allow yourself to dissociate the stuff that we've talked about uh, for the last 45 minutes and just focus on the colors and the competition and the personalities, and the game. It is a respite from all this other stuff. And, and that, that applies even when it isn't a pandemic. It applies because the world, we live in a world where I can wake up in the morning, roll over, and all the bad news in the world can be right in my hand. And the more you consume news, the kind of harder it is to live in the world, I think, broadly, because there's just, you can find all the bad news, all the heartbreak, all the tragedy, all the all the unfairness in a world that increasingly feels like it's going mad. And as climate change races across the world, as we, and we still, Bitcoin is still rising up as an, as an idea, as we worry about the United States falling into essentially an autocratic gangster economy, um, which is our neighbor, as you worry about, there's so many things you can worry about. We don't know when this pandemic is gonna end for that matter. Um, it's nice to have things that allow you not to think about those things. And I totally understand that. Um, clean mental space, right? That's what we all kind of should aim for, clean mental space. Sports, if you approach it the exact right way, is that. But the more you know about it, the harder it is to do that. So speaking of clean mental space, should we have worked harder to keep more sports open for kids uh, and high school students and even some uni university athletes haven't been able to play. Should, should we have given that greater priority when we you know, approach the task of pandemic management? It's such a hard question. The entire pandemic, when you uh, do all the accounting, is about balancing harms because there's no easy way to do this. If you want to protect the hospitals and vulnerable in your society, then you need to create harms as part of policies elsewhere for the most part. I mean, it's it's not quite that simple because it's enormously complex, but that's how it mostly works. We will look back and we will take a look at the harms that we decided on, um, just as the rest of the world hopefully will. Maybe no one will look back. Maybe no one wants to go back and look at it. It's possible. Um, I do think we should have prioritized, the two things we should have prioritized in all this above all were probably three things, hospitals, 
the most vulnerable in our society and children. Like, what does it say about you as a society if you don't pay attention to those, if you don't prioritize those? I'm not sure we did that here in Ontario. I know they have not done that in the United States. Um, this as an idea, like my kids do swimming lessons and play tennis, and basketball, and whatever else. I would have liked them to keep doing that. But we also couldn't afford to bring COVID home because of a couple underlying conditions we were worried about. Um, would it have been better and could we have done it reasonably safely? For most people, yeah, you probably could have. Um, because with COVID up until uh, Delta, even with Delta, like most people don't get it, don't get sick. But what if a kid plays sports and brings home COVID and it turns out your father has an underlying immunocompromised condition that no one knows about, right? Or you live with a grandparent. It's a, I don't know what the answer is. That's the problem. I do think that we should have prioritized kids in school more than businesses. I think we should have prioritized kids sports more than professional sports. Um, but I'm not sure how you would have done it. And that's the problem. Indoor sports and outdoor sports are different. Like you put kids in a hockey arena or put them in a, on a basketball court. COVID, like you do it right now. Omicron's going to race. So I don't know how you do it safely. I just don't know. Um, my hope is that we get through this and we can just restart it. But yeah, like the harms, the lingering harms of this pandemic will weigh most heavily probably on the bereaved. And I would say after that on children. And none of us know what that's going to look like. And we all hope the kids will be resilient. And I don't know. I, it's one of those questions that I wish there was a simple answer to. And one of the most dangerous things in politics in the world is when people offer you simple answers to complex questions, complex problems. Um, I wish we could have is about the best I can probably get to. I wish we could have because there are real harms that, that have been created in this. And I'm not sure it could have been avoided, but it probably probably could have made better decisions. So as a journalist, you've been mostly writing about the pandemic and to a much lesser extent about sports. Um, what has that experience been like? What's been your biggest surprise coming from that experience? My biggest surprise, I think, probably for everyone was that I, I was relatively natural to do um, or it looked I probably looked like it. Like it was such an interesting I I, I kind of figured this was coming. I talked to enough people outside sports who are smart enough that. I had an idea that this was going to be a problem. I was in, that said, I was in California the week, the first week of March, 2020, because I was on a Leafs trip, terrified the whole way, washing my hands after I touched the hotel TV remotes. We didn't know that. Um, what I've loved most about doing this job is, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard job. It was really difficult at the beginning. I had to immerse myself in, in the coronavirus and all the literature surrounding it to a degree that, I've never had, it was like going to medical school almost, like it was 15 hours a day for a really long time. Um, and it's hard because it, there's a lot of bad news in this. There's just a lot of bad news. And you have to keep going. And like all of us in the pandemic, you have to keep going. And the thing that I've taken away from it is that it was a privilege to get to have to do it. Hmm. Um, as a sports reporter, I very rarely had a chance 
to engage in public service in any way, public service journalism. Occasionally I have, I've written, I mean, I've written more politics and social issues in sports than most people ever do, right? Um, but this, this, the way I approach this job is as public service journalism uh, to try to direct the best policy that we can manage in service of protecting the vulnerable and the hospitals. Um, I don't know if I've done a very good job of that, but that's what I've kind of tried to do. And the idea of public service, the idea of trying to be a representative for people who need it. Um, it's a lot, but it, and this, again, I don't feel good about any of this, but that at least has a gratifying aspect to it. Um, I've got, I've had a lot of people write in over the course of this pandemic with stuff that's really meant a lot to me. Um, a lot of people don't like what I do, but that's fine. That's just part of the territory. Um, but that has been to me, I've never felt more satisfaction in my work. Um, and I'm proud of my career, but uh, I've never felt like I was contributing in a greater way to the degree that I have in the last two years. And that's where it's a privilege to get to have to do it. Like I'm tired, we're all tired. I'm so tired of writing these pieces. I'm so tired of this thing. Um, but I'm glad I had to do it. Um, because it's, it's changed kind of my opinion a little bit of, of what I should and can do in life. Um, because I don't know if there's anything at the end of it, you kind of want to be able to say that you tried to help people. Right. Um, and that's kind of what the last two years has been like for me. Well, Bruce, thank you for joining me and thank you for your service. <laughs> thank you, Jody. That's very much appreciated.